0: If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with artist, poet, and writer Marlena Seven Bremener about her new book, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howell in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here once again with Marlena Seven Bremner. Marlena, thanks for coming back.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back on the show, Brian.
0: My pleasure. Um, you know, I've changed the name of the podcast since the last time we talked. So oh. you were you were on the Medicine Path podcast, and oh. now we're called uh, Howl in the Wilderness.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: Ooh, good, good response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean. <clears throat> It's just kind of a little survey I take, but what does uh, what does that name evoke for you?
1: Mm, a sense of wildness and freedom and connection with the unconscious, I guess. You know, the forest being kind of symbolic of that unconscious, unknown, mysterious, dark potentiality, and yeah, sort of a cry of. Um, revelry and connection with that aspect of the self that's what it brings up for me
0: i like it i like your association well you know i'm up in the forest here on uh, southern vancouver island Mm -hmm. and you're in a different kind of wilderness
1: yeah i'm out in the desert right at the edge of a very expansive um desert here in new mexico it's sort of a forest, but it's like open woodland of juniper and pinyon. So there's lots of space, not a lot of shelter.
0: Mm. So when you're in your, um, what is it? A straw bale casita that you're in, something like that, no. or adobe? or?
1: It's straw bale, yeah, and adobe.
0: Okay, so when you're in your little casita there, do you ever hear cries in the wilderness at night?
1: Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot of coyotes around here. Um, We hear the hoot of an owl occasionally through the window.
0: Great. And so when you hear that, what's the usual response? Mm.
1: You know, it's exciting to me.
0: Mm.
1: Um, I like to imagine them out there running around wild in the dark and um, hunting and Yeah. Reveling in, in their experience of nature and existence.
0: Do you ever howl or hoot back when you hear that?
1: (laughs) Sometimes I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Come on, admit it. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Me too. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, well, last time, you know, I'm just kind of amazed at, uh, what you've produced here. Last time we talked about your first book, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. And um, your second book has just been released, The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy. And they're both beautiful companion books. Like they just fit together so well. Mm -hmm. And just off the bat, I just want to congratulate you on completing these two projects uh kind of astounded at the amount of work that must have gone into creating these um what does it feel like to be on the other side now that they're out in the wild (laughs)
1: um well it's pretty exciting it's also a big relief for those to be completed and out in the world and um you know, now I have more time to go back to the studio and paint and work on other writing projects. So that's been really nice. And also, yes, yeah, just exciting to have um, feedback from people that are reading the book, that are enjoying it, and getting inspired by it. And you know, and the first one as well, and the positive reception that that one has gotten. Um, it feels really good. You know, it it was an awful lot of work and a lot of years that went into both of those books. So.
0: Um,
1: it's a good feeling that they're
0: out there. I'm curious about your process in writing these books. Well, In in researching and writing, was the research going on consecutively? Did you set up a a schedule for yourself every day? How did that work?
1: I mean, yeah, it was pretty much full on every day, all day, for the most part. Um, I really didn't have much of a social life as people that know me can attest um, I was really just doing the research and writing kind of um, together at the same time. And, but a lot of what had inspired the books was all these years of experience and research that had come prior. And then when I was in the like full-time writing stage, you know, the last four years or so, um, it was research and writing at the same time and also sort of a synthesis of all the experience that I've had with this practice and with this material.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you had already produced quite a body of work uh, mainly in painting, but I think you also do poetry and other writing as well. Yeah. Did, did the process of researching, writing these books, um, give you any new insights on what may have come to you intuitively in your work practice?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, A lot of the research for the history, both in the first book and the second book um, was new for me, but I wanted to have that sort of foundation. Um, So when I started doing that research and learning about these different um, ancient texts and also these different art periods that I wrote about in the new book, um, I just found so many rich um, pieces of, you know, literary creations and visual creations and um, things that really helped to give examples for all the things that I had experienced for myself and to give them context so that was a really neat process to go through and explore
0: Mm -hmm. and how would you summarize the uh, the new book in relation to the the first book Um, yeah like what inspired you to did you already conceive them as two books uh, or did the second one come after the first one? How did that work?
1: Well, originally I had wanted it to be all one book. So I wanted to talk about Hermeticism and the seven spheres and then go into the alchemical theory and the four stages of the alchemical great work. Um, but when I presented the idea to Inner Traditions, they asked if I could break it into two books. And at first I was like, oh no, you know this is terrible. But then I thought about it and it really broke apart nicely into two um, different books. And so for the first one, I focused more on Hermeticism, the history of it, its development over the centuries, um, and how it relates to alchemical theory. And then a journey through the seven spheres, because I really wanted to have those like full chapters on each of the seven spheres, um, you know, an in depth sort of journey that people could go on and get immersed in to familiarize themselves with those energies and archetypes. And then, um, yeah, the second book ended up being more about the creative process in relation to alchemy and the alchemical great work. And as the historical segment, I sort of journeyed through um, these different art periods through the 19th and 20th centuries um, to give examples for how artists in different times have. both been inspired by the occult and by alchemy and magic and how they've employed these uh, practices in their own
0: creations. Hmm. Um, just thinking about like the, the function of alchemical philosophy, like for me, uh, my interest in it um, is really that it provides such a, a rich set of images, uh, that describe a transformational process. Um, so as a kind of renegade psychologist and someone who works with people, um, it can be really helpful to have those images, uh, to describe something that, um, is, uh, maybe not so tangible or hard to conceptualize, but is really like a felt experience, or it it can help us see that we're like help orient us in, in a process that we're Undergoing, um, how does it function for you? I mean, what's the what's the benefit of uh, learning about alchemy and alchemical philosophy?
1: Well, it was much the same for me. I mean, nowadays we have psychological terminology to understand these different processes that we go through, but the alchemists didn't have that. They just sort of had this intuitive understanding of the symbolic world and how to facilitate transmutations through creativity, through um, work in the laboratory, but also through art and poetry, which is a huge part of the alchemical history that we have. Um, Very rich, symbolic visual imagery, and then very encoded in symbolic metaphorical language, um, both in terms of like alchemical recipes, but also just poems about different alchemical processes. And um, dialogues between, say, like Mercurius or Hermes Trismegistus or other, you know, ancient wise sages and the alchemist who's practicing, um, and they're encoded in such a way that the words they're not going to necessarily make sense to the rational mind. So there's a way of reading these texts that you can just allow uh, the words and the imagery that um, is there to sink into your own unconscious, to sort of gestate within your own unconscious. And then through your personal creative practice and process, those things then begin to influence it. And that's how it worked for me. Um, I just sort of started immersing myself in alchemical material and allowing that to saturate my own inner world. So that those symbols and ideas could then uh, be transmuted into something else that was coming from a personal level. Um, Mm. So that's how I have worked with it and how I've written about it in the book. Um, But, you know, there's also just reading about like the four stages. Sometimes it's broken down into three stages of the great work. Um, But most alchemists agree that there's like a three or four stage stage process that the perfection of the philosopher's stone goes through and so that's a big theme of the book as well um and how that relates to the creative process and um yeah there's various ways to to look at those stages but we can talk more about that if you have specific questions
0: yeah i'd like to get into all those terms and have you speak to them in more detail um uh you know james Hillman the psychologist he he thought that the benefit of uh alchemical images and language was that it, there's something about them that they're they're so strange that they defy literalization mm-hmm. right so they kind of confound the rational literal mind and mm-hmm. and speak more directly to the soul uh and so he he saw that as a great benefit because he was uh um he was kind of against literal literalization. And he also had an issue with um the kind of abstract conceptual quality of much of the psychological language, like talking about the unconscious or the ego or the superego. Um, they don't carry much weight. And one thing about the alchemical language is that it's always speaking about um something material, but doing it in a such such a way that like you said, resists um, us taking it literally. And so mm-hmm. there are these irrational images that also carry some, some weight and there's a kind of visceral response to some of the descriptions. We can really um, more feel it than kind of get it with the mind. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the images that you see, they're very dreamlike you know and it's the same kind of thing that happens when you try to like rationally or literally interpret a dream um it just confounds the rationality so you have to approach it in a different way a more um lunar way so to speak rather than a conscious rational way mhm yeah
0: yeah um well i would like to get into some of these terms just to kind of lay some groundwork
1: mm-hmm. so uh
0: Let's just go through them. So starting with the you know, the great work, the Magnum opus. How do you okay? So if you could describe that from an alchemical perspective and then talk about how that relates to uh growth as an artist or um maybe even not just as an artist, but as a person who's uh interested in crafting a a kind of a good life.
1: Yeah, so the great work in alchemy is the process whereby The philosopher's stone is taken from its sort of raw state and perfected through various processes um, to be able to transmute metals, so base metals like lead into gold. And so there's these various stages that the matter goes through, and all of the alchemists have different ideas for what that starting matter is, Um, the materia prima or the beginning material, the first material. But the idea is that you take that first matter and you subject it to a number of alchemical processes, and it transforms along the way. And eventually um, the result is the perfected philosopher's stone, which is described as like a red powder or sometimes as a tincture um, or as a red stone. And this is has the ability to transmute metals. And in terms of like the creative or the spiritual process um we go through a very similar thing when we're creating or when we're going through a spiritual transmutation we begin with something rough and unrefined and through various stages of perfection and refinement and transmutation and separation and coagulation we bring this beginning matter to its final results and in the creative process we end up with something that we can um project outward into the world in the same way that the philosopher's stone is said to be able to, um, it's projected onto the metals and that's how it transmutes them. And so our works of creation are then projected out into the world and multiplied. And um, there's more I can say about that, but on a spiritual level, it's a very similar thing as well. Um, We reach into this sort of undifferentiated Undefined chaos that lies within us, and we're we're searching for that um, solid essence of truth at the depth of our being, and that journey takes us through all these different transmutations of the self as we um, separate, solve, and coagulate, you know, um, into a new awareness a deeper, more profound awareness of who and what we are at the end of that process.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, like when um when we start with um well not all psychotherapeutic work is involved in the in transformation you know sometimes it's about coping or adapting but traditionally if you go into analysis um so depth psychology. Uh, it's an interesting to note that analysis means to separate. So we're looking for differentiation. So I think that's why Jung thought that alchemy provided a really uh, good set of images and a model for the individuation process. Because when we come into therapy, yeah, we come in as this massa confusa, you know, this coagulated mass of feelings and reactions and memories and experiences and traumas and um, the first stage of analysis is to start to separate things out so that we can have a a better look at things and differentiate Uh, and then hopefully at some point it all starts to reform into something that's coherent um and 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 multiple in its unity in a way do you feel like that's uh, similar to the alchemical process? Like is the the final stage, is it something that is is very singular or is it more of a well-differentiated um, integration of all these different aspects or parts, like say the elements or something like that? Like do they still retain their kind of individuality? You know what yes. I'm getting at?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I see the final stage definitely as an integration and a union. And often it's described as the uh, royal marriage of the opposites. So soul and Luna or sulfur and Mercury or the male and female, the active and receptive. um, Yin and yang, you know, these opposites that are quintessential to our nature, our being. And in the final stage, those come together and they're Firmly fixed, this idea of fixation where they're inseparable and they're impervious to fire. They're like just this solid awareness within the individual of the union of these two parts. And from that, a third thing is born. And that's this idea of this like divine child. Um, and the way the I see it, the right? child, yeah, the divine hermaphrodite who embodies both of these principles in one body. Um, is neither one or the other, but they're both existing in unity. And that child is also, I see it as like the magician who wields all of the elements at their command, you know, so um, in that sense, the elements are also balanced between the polarities. So there's not this sort of imbalance um, within each element or between the elements, but they're sort of held within this um, in a balanced way. You know, Mm. and so an individual with that state of consciousness would um, they'd be in touch with all of the elements on a regular basis. You know, they would be in touch with their body and the earth element and their emotions and the water element and their intellect and the air element and um, their passion and energy with the fire element. All of that would be working synergistically for them and Mm. with that marriage of the opposites, there's this continuous ebb and flow between the active and receptive. So an understanding that we need both the conscious and the unconscious. We need to be awake and we need to sleep. We need to be active and we need to be receptive. And um, just that fundamental understanding of that ebb and flow and knowing when each one is um, necessary. That's how I see that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how does that, like, where would you, in terms of a creative process, Mm -hmm. uh, where does the philosopher's stone fit in? Like what aspect of the creative process would that um, symbolize? Mm.
1: In terms of say one project, an individual project that you're working on, that philosopher's stone is the completion of that project, but not just the completion, but the, um, new awareness that it engenders within you, whatever is birthed within you through the completion of that project, that spiritual understanding, um, divine understanding that is then multiplied out into the world, projected out into the world through that creation. Um, and then the ability to transmit that state of consciousness that you attained through that piece of art
0: right yeah that's what was coming to my mind is that that aspect of the projection of the kind of transformative force Mm -hmm. so then the finished creative project uh, would help you reach some new level of understanding or insight uh, Mm -hmm. as the creator and then sharing that with the world hopefully the work can then um, will work on other people who experience it in that way.
1: Yeah. And the idea that I attempt to present in the book is that the more that we can sort of purify and refine our own inner world, the more that those creations of ours will have the power to transmute the world and to benefit the world. So we do the inner work of transmutation um, and purification and refinement and all of that in order to create works that are more.
0: Um, impact and more benefit to the whole hmm. so the work the the creative work is akin to the philosopher's stone. The creator, I mean are we the confused mess that um the <laughs> the philosopher's stone is looking to transform into a more coherent whole?
1: <laughs> well, the philosopher's stone is born from within that masa confusa. It's said to exist within it and all the elements as well, but just in a state of undifferentiation. And so as the creator, we're bringing order to that confusion, Um, but we have to be able to access it, to open it up. And um, some people do that through analysis. Other people do that through the creative process or sometimes both. But we open up that confused place within us and with a curious uh, attitude as to, you know, what's here and what wants to be born from this. Um, And through the four stages of the great work that comes into focus more and more. But I think we all access that part of ourselves at different times in our lives. Um, It's always there, but sometimes it's, we're really in it, you know, we really feel that state of confusion and loss of identity and perhaps loss of inspiration and um just being overwhelmed by the lack of order in our own psyche, in our own world. Um and I think that's one thing that I emphasize in the first stage of the work, which is called the Nigredo, um, and has to do with um, it's a very Saturnian limiting sense of reality and dark night of the soul kind of thing. And the prima materia is associated with that. Um and so sometimes we experience that confusion and it overwhelms us and we become so identified with it that we think it's never gonna end. But if we can accept it and sort of surrender to it and see it as the beginning of a process rather than an endpoint, like a death, which it is, but that death leads to rebirth. And it's just a matter of um allowing it to be there and being patient with it and curious about it and it will transform and so that's a big i write quite a bit about that first stage because i think it's really the most important and the easiest one for people to mistake for you know insufficiency or um loss of self or you know these things that we get caught up in and yeah yeah
0: I think you said it, like when you're in that, that blackening stage, you can feel like there's no way out that uh, this is all there is. Um, You know, it's really, you've hit the bottom. So uh, can you bring in some more uh, images from the Negredo stage to help people connect to it uh, in their experience of life? Like I think about like lead and heaviness, the Saturnian, like depression Um, lack of vision Mm -hmm. what are some other things that come to mind
1: yeah I think there's a great image of an alchemist kind of huddled in this like dry valley with wind and fire blowing at him and he's got his arms crossed and there's like I think some crows in the background so like crows and coffins and bones um, ash and yeah the heaviness and the density of lead the sort of dullness of lead and all. How that relates to the emotional world of like just feeling kind of dull and heavy and stagnant um, and limited, mm. um, and it can feel like we're being assailed by the elements. You know, like mm. I think of anxious depression or anxiety in general, where the mind just sort of is like attacking the self, the identity, and um, the sort of torment that that induces. And all of these things are very um quintessential part of the Negredo experience. And you know, we've all been there to -hmm. various degrees at different points in our life. Um I went through it um to an extreme degree for a very long time. And that was sort of what led into writing these books was just my experience with that and how I came through it. Um, And it was through connecting with alchemy that I was able to put it into context. And so that's a big part of what I want to share with people is like these experiences that we have um, they have a purpose and they have a deeper meaning for us. And if we can get in touch with that, then there's a great gift. You know, the philosopher's stone is within that. And there's, that's our great gift to the world.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think like one of the first lifelines that can reach us when we're in that dark depressive assailed state that feels like it's never going to end or there's you know nothing beyond this is a a kind of healing story like Mm -hmm. um the one that alchemy provides that no no this is only the first stage in something like wonderful actually the first stage of a great work the great work that is your life and like that can be the first thing to uh to to save us when we're in that right and so even just that is like such a wonderful gift for us um because uh you know kind of conventional psychotherapy doesn't really have much of that to offer you know they're kind of like treating the symptoms of uh depression or anxiety um but not necessarily bringing in a a kind of a larger mythology or story that can put it in a a, like a, a bigger context you know your suffering into this bigger context of transformation and um so even just that uh offering that is great so um when you're in that state now that you've come to recognize it Mm -hmm. what are some of the ways that help you connect to the inner philosopher's stone um to to begin to work with uh whatever's needing to be transformed at that time
1: yeah um well, one of the first things I do if I'm in a state like that, whether that's like a creative block where I'm sort of lacking inspiration and ideas, or I just don't feel motivated to work on anything, or whether it's just, you know, anxiety about different things going on in my life that becomes intense for a period of time. I kind of see that as an Negrito experience, um, or like a, just a general sort of funk, a depression, you know, that I'm going
0: through. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, One of the first things I do is pay attention to the dream world. And I I do that on a regular basis anyway, but I start to pay a little more attention um, when I'm going through something like that, because often the dream world will convey some crucial information that I'm not able to see with my daily awareness. And um, it'll also sometimes provide like the root of some great inspiration that turns into a new piece of work, you know? Um, so often that's what I'll do first is look at my dreams, um, take an inventory of the different symbols and things that are arising and how those relate, um, through my own personal associations to things I'm experiencing in my life. And then, um, investigating from there and allowing that to sort of begin to, um, inseminate my imagination, I guess, you know, those images and symbols from the dream. And, um, often that'll be exactly what begins to transform that nigredo experience into something new.
0: Do you ever just, um, start, uh, recreating some of the images that come to you in dreams, uh, just to see what will happen. If you just start bringing it out of the, the mind and onto the page or onto the canvas or clay, uh, you know, just like kind of, Well, like Jung said, that the hands can work out, like working with the hands can uh, work out problems that confound the mind. And he thought there's great value in just starting to make something of those images.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, occasionally I will sketch out a dream or like in my dream notebook, I'll do a little sketch of something that was bizarre or interesting, you know. Um, But then sometimes the imagery from a dream is so captivating and so haunting to me that it becomes a painting. And usually it's not a direct translation of the dream because that's kind of hard to capture in one uh two-dimensional image, but it'll be some sort of um integration of the dream that occurs over time that allows me to place it into a cohesive composition. Um but I have found that to be extremely helpful in like really unpacking what a dream means and integrating it on a on a very deep level Mm -hmm. like that really goes beyond the rational mind and I can like you know interpret it in a literary way or like literal way I mean and um describe it to people but at the same time it, it goes beyond that that sort of integration that comes when you do create something from the dream like that
0: yeah yeah I think we can um you know kind of interpret for days and and kind of play with ideas in the mental sphere without it actually uh, catalyzing any any real um, transformation, you know on on mm-hmm. the deeper levels uh, that will okay. change the way that we see the world and act in the world. Um, so that's good to hear. So when you're like um, kind of working with those images,, uh, do you ever find that like new insights just kind of pop into your head as you're working out the images on the page?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. All the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also new dreams will come along that provide new information, you know, that relate to the original dream. And yeah, I find I work very slowly. It takes me a long time to complete a painting. So that allows for a lot of new inspiration to come in. And um, also sometimes when I'm working in a spontaneous way, allowing things to emerge on the canvas without my direction, without my rational filter, there will be these surprising images and figures that emerge. And those have a lot of information to share as well. So then there's sort of a dialogue between um, my dream world that's ongoing and then what's coming out of the painting through sort of unconscious means and then my own personal experience. And it's it can be really interesting how that all plays out.
0: Mm. What's your conception of the imagination or imagination? Um, do you think that uh, these images live in some other space and they come through? dreams or through uh like unconscious spontaneous sp- speaking or r- writing or uh art making um like how do you conceive of the imagination because some people just think of it as a, a faculty of the mind the you know, mm-hmm. mind's able to create uh images mm-hmm. and, and things like that um i i, I kind of go with more of uh like what Henri corbin talked about That you know drawing from the um the mid eastern traditions, where they saw the imaginal as a, another uh, level of reality in between the material world and the spiritual world. And that really rings true to my experience that it does feel like in my dream, I go to another place that uh, maybe is even like next door to this reality or the source of this reality. There's so much uh, interplay. Um, but how do you think of I don't like to say the imagination because then it comes a, a thing. I think of it as yeah. a place. So,
1: yeah, I like that term, the imaginal world as well. And I use that in the book. Um, I do think of it as the means by which this world is created, that it's all happening on the imaginal level before it comes into this dense level of reality. And you know, I also think of the unconscious and the collective unconscious connected with that imaginal world. And so, you know, with active imagination, the technique developed by Jung, we can sort of enter that imaginal world in a conscious directed way to facilitate communication. Um, or we can allow it to come to us through dreams or through s- sort of spontaneous fantasy. Um, and in the book, I talk about the use of the imagination. um for transmuting reality. So going into the imaginal world intentionally and sort of planting seeds of things that we desire, things that we want to see come forth in this reality. So in a way, the imaginal world is like that Massa Confusa, the primal matter, um, in which everything exists in a state of uh, potentiality, but it's not defined yet. So we're able to access that and influence it and sort of um, you know, engender new potentialities within that through our own vision and our own dreams. Um, and I also see the imaginal world as the place where all of these spirits and entities that we connect with um, on the hermetic path, that they all exist in that imaginal world. Not to say that they're unreal. And I think that's where people get tripped up is this idea that the imagination is not real. And that was a sort of enlightenment era value that um, has really affected our connection with this fundamental faculty of being a human um, to say, oh, that's just magical thinking. You're just imagining things. It's just your imagination, you know, to write it off. And alchemy was kind of cast aside in the same way, you know, it's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It's chemistry is all we need. That's what we got from alchemy. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the imagination, the imaginal world is uh, crucial at this time in our evolution as a species on this planet to uh, reawakening a new enchanted um, connection with reality and connection with all things. So that's what I would like to inspire uh, with with these books, with both of them.
0: Yeah, good. I'm a kind of uh, (laughs) an activist of the imagination as well. And um, it's become like uh, kind of like an ossified faculty because of all the reasons that you stated, the kind of denigration of uh, the imagination. Um, even of dreams, you know, dreams are just like the mind processing the day's experiences and they come out all confused and you know <laughs> um, But the, it really is a source of something that we are really starved for at this time. And I think you know we're in a time of uh, a global negredo of uh, a lot of the old structures are blackening and ready to die. And the imagination is going to be key uh, a key faculty or a place for us to access if we're going to give birth to anything that's new or, or transformative. Otherwise we're just going to be repeating old patterns. Um, so let's talk about the next stage, right? The albedo. Yeah. So once uh, we've started to work alchemically in the negredo stage, what can we expect from uh, the albedo, the whitening stage?
1: So the albedo is kind of the the point in the nigredo stage where you see that first glimmer of light on the horizon. You know, it's that first moment of like, oh, okay, this isn't gonna last forever. There's something else that's coming. And um, it's not the full daybreak, you know, that's the kind of completion of the process. Um, but it's that first glimmer of hope and, Whereas the negredo is associated with um, Saturn and with lead and the earth element and this sort of heavy, dense energy. The albedo is more about water and purification, and it's a very lunar process and also Jupiterian. So there's an expansiveness and um, a sense of being held within a greater body, like as if you were um, in the ocean, the mother ocean, you know, so Um, it's a sort of spiritual awareness that comes and, you know, when you come out of a period of the dark night of the soul and you're just coming out of it and you begin to see the light again, it can feel like a complete spiritual realization, you know, and you can almost feel like, Oh my God, I'm at the end of the work. Like I'm fully realized. Um, but it's really just the first step out of that darkness. And there's work to be done because that water element is there to help us um further break down and restructure uh these patterns that we've been playing out in our life. And we can think of those as like mental structures um, or the structures that make up our life. And like you said, on a collective scale, these, you know, sort of systemic structures of our society and our culture are all sort of breaking down right now. And uh we're in that negredo stage, but the next stage would be where we sort of um get in touch with the higher vision for what we would like to see in our collective experience and purifying those old structures and reworking them. And so that's what the albedo is about. It's about kind of washing, cleansing. Um, And if you think of the way that salt, which is a very, it's a Saturnian um, substance, breaks down in water and dissolves and becomes one with the water, that's sort of a, a good image for what's happening in the albedo. It's like these um, rigid structures, they're breaking down, they're opening up. There's a release and an emotionality to it and um, a healing in that, and a sort of connection with something greater that helps us to aspire to something new. So we can start to restructure those, those forms within ourselves.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so moving from a state of uh, stuckness to a state of uh, things start flowing again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there can be like a lot of inspiration and um, beginning to see the world in a more symbolic way, connecting with the imaginal realm. Um, Yeah, less Mm -hmm. of a defined boundary between the inner and the outer world.
0: Yeah, I can, I can notice that in, in myself and in people I work with that uh, coming out of a really dark um, stuck period, maybe the dreams start to come through a little more strongly, right? Mm -hmm. It's like that, that flow from the imaginal or the unconscious is starting to, to happen more like some, there's been an opening. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I also think about like, maybe at the kind of later stages of the negredo uh maybe there's a grief process that needs to happen in order to open up the the watery element uh, i think the salt in the water being like tears of grief um uh, mm-hmm. that maybe being like a necessary stage to open up into the albedo into the whitening what do yeah. you think yeah
1: i totally agree um and on a you know in my own personal experience there have been times when i just feel completely assailed by anxiety or depression or whatever it is and sort of stuck in this place and the second that i kind of surrender and just let myself feel it and just get into the emotions of it and just be with it and cry you know whatever it takes that's the moment that it goes into the albedo so i think there's something to that um element of grief and expression and release um that either leads into the albedo or that comes with the albedo and again this watery element of the tears falling um and that release as we just simply allow ourselves to feel whatever it is rather than resisting it which is i think where a lot of the problem comes in is that we're resisting it Hmm.
0: yeah i'm also struck by um that movement from saturn to jupiter as well so from uh this um patriarchal god of time mm-hmm. and constraints yeah. to jupiter who uh you know has a kind of significant placement in my astro- astrological chart but uh um exp- expansion bigness you know the the big guru planet like carries a lot of weight uh um there's like a joy associated with jupiter i think too for me at least um yeah, I like, jo-
1: joviality.
0: I, right yeah. joviality by jove yeah 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 that's interesting okay so then some systems say that there are three stages to the great work and others uh add a little more um detail with the fourth stage of C- citrinitas this yellowing yeah. stage yeah yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so i included the citrinitas um and i think It was a sort of adaptation in in later years to do away with that third stage, the yellowing, and just go straight to the reddening, which is the final stage. But I think the citronitas is really important because it represents a phase of both transition and maturation.
0: This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness thanks